And I ask you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 is where we'll be looking this morning. If you don't have a sermon outline, there's some gentlemen who are coming forward to hand one to you. You really need one. So let them come all the way forward, please. And uh, then you will be able to see them. And I uh, want to encourage you to um, lift your hand and let them give one to you. This morning we come again to our series on healthy church. And notice this slide, healthy church, me and us. So when we look at what is a healthy church, we need to recognize that there's the individual factor of me. It's the individual factor of you. But not only that, but there is the collective nature, the communal nature of us as in the body of Christ together. Our beginning message this last week, last Sunday, was healthy church moving toward maturity. Do you remember that? Healthy church moving toward maturity. And uh, some of you had to go look up the word keister. You didn't know what that was, um, but that's all right. You were figuring it out. I think by the context of it, you got it. But um, let's review a little bit from last week. As we go through this series, what we want to do is take just a few Sundays to remind ourselves of what it means to be in a healthy church individually and what it means for us to be in a healthy church collectively so we know what the goal are, what the goal is. So last Sunday, we were looking at moving toward maturity. Notice where it says review from last week. And fill these in. They're not on the screen in front of you. You'll just have to listen and follow along. The first one is, our world is increasingly rejecting what? Okay, do you remember what we said last week? Our world is increasingly rejecting what? Maturity. Let's say it out loud together. Our world is increasingly rejecting maturity. That was very weak. You now know where we're going. Let's say it again. Our world is increasingly rejecting maturity. You need to understand that. The world is not only embracing immaturity, but listen to this. The world is exalting immaturity. It's cool to be stupid. It's cool to be selfish. It's cool to be ignorant. It's increasingly cool to run by your emotions and not by logic. It's being defended in every way. We live in a world where maturity and moving on and realizing that you're not the center of the world, because that's what toddlers think, that, that the world revolves around them. And as we come into growth, as we come into maturity, we start to realize the world doesn't revolve around me. We live in a world that is increasingly immature, and the embracement of that, the the exaltation of that, is completely counter to what God's plan is. God's plan is, is that you would grow up, and that you wouldn't just grow up, but that you would grow up into Him. You would grow up in him, to be like him. God is perfect and complete. He is perfectly mature. And he says, come be like me. And so, I can't re-preach the sermon, but I, I, I want you to see and remember what we said, because that's a very key part of a healthy church, is that we as individuals and that we as a church would recognize that maturity is God's plan. Notice this. God calls us, fill it in, God calls us to embrace maturity both individually and corporately as a church so that we should be growing individually and corporately as a church. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. If we were to go there and see see that, that's what we were studying last week. And notice what we said It's all about growing up in Christ. It's all about growing up in him. Um, We unpack that passage where it says pastors and teachers equip God's people for the work of the ministry. 
And one of the things that I hammered on last week is that we see from that Ephesians passage that the work of the ministry, being equipped for the work of the ministry, is that which builds up the body of Christ. It's that which grows the body of Christ. And so not only is that true collectively, but listen, that's true individually for you. As you become involved in the work of serving others, as you become a person who serves others and helps and grows others, you yourself grow. Now, a lot of Christians have, meant, have missed the memo on this um, and fill that in where the work of the ministry builds up. The work of the ministry builds up the body of Christ, both individually and corporately. Now, many, of Christi- many Christians are not maturing because they do not actively serve. Many Christians are not maturing because they do not actively serve. They're wondering what's wrong. Why am I not growing? Why is this not fulfilling? Or why do I keep failing? Why do these sins just beleaguer me? And why is it that I'm just kind of really not feeling the thrill of God? Why is my spiritual life kind of humdrum? And God is kind of there. But where is he really? Or you you feel like a constant failure. Let me just say that a growing Christian begins to grow in the knowledge of God's Word, growing in the confidence of God's Word, and that is not going to happen if we are not obeying God to serve others. It's simply not going to happen. You see, a toddler only thinks about himself, what I need, what I need. Just give me what I need. I'm desperate. Just get, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I, I want to I knock a hole in this wall or, you know, whatever. I want to use the marker the way I want to use the marker. You know, a, a toddler just wants to do what they want to do, doesn't want parameters, doesn't want to actually look beyond themselves. And do you know that there's some middle schoolers like that? There's some high schoolers like that? There's some college students like that. Did you know that there's people in their 20s and in their 30s that are like that? There's people in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s that are like that? I guess if you're 90, you're almost grandfathered in, but I, not really. You can be a very immature person all the way through. And for Christians, we need to understand that God has saved you in part to use you. And if you refuse to be, to be used, you are short-circuiting one of the great things that will grow you. I, I hope and pray that even as a result of last Sunday in these comments right now that some of you are saying, I'm not going to continue like that. I'm going to figure this out. Lord, help me figure out how to go on and grow and get my eyes off myself and grow. Help me to see how to serve others. In just a moment, we're going to see a key passage on that. But notice the next statement here. They need to stop wondering what's wrong and begin serving others. Fill that in. They need to stop wondering what's wrong and begin serving others. Now, that's many Christians. What about many churches? That's the next bullet point here. Many churches are not mature because their members do not serve. Now, I praise the Lord that we're better than most on this, but I would love to see where Sheridan Hills would be if everyone under the sound of my voice was committed to serving God by serving others with their life not only in this place and at this address and not only within the context of our own church, but also in the context of others. What would happen if we took on the mind and the heart of Christ, the example of Christ, and we started to give our life focusing upon others instead of focusing upon ourselves? 
Let me tell you that people who serve other people are happy people, even if it just comes down to happiness. People who serve others are joyful people. They're thankful people. They're grateful people. But people who only look after themselves get caught in a very, very self-centered, myopic mindset that allows them to just fall prey to so many of Satan's lies and misery. So many churches are not mature because their members do not serve. I praise God that our church is growing in this and getting better about this. And um, one of the pastors said to me this last week, Pastor, I am thankful that we are in a healthy church. I'm thankful that we have a body who loves to serve. And I agree with that. I believe that there's always room for us to grow in that. What's interesting is when we preach a sermon like this, the people who are working so hard and about to kill themselves working, they, they think, oh, I got to do more, I got to do more. And the people that very often are sitting there going, hmm, wish somebody would serve me, continue saying, I wish somebody would serve me. I'm praying against that. I'm praying that we would all engage the mentality of Christ. And notice the mentality of Christ. Put a big circle around Matthew 20, verse 28. This is Jesus speaking about himself, and this would be perhaps our most central guiding passage on this. The Son of Man did not come to be what? Did not come to be served, but to serve. And look what it says at the next part. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see in Jesus the great example. Not only is he the great functional sacrifice, the operative need for us in our salvation, but he also is the great example to us of what he wants us to be like, that we would have a mind to be a blessing to others, that we would serve others, and all that that entails, that we would begin serving. One of the greatest ways to do that is to serve within your church family. Every single week, there's a lot that needs to be done in the life of the church. There's greeting, there's parking, there's sound, there's lights, there's music, there's giving, there's, there's teaching of classes, there's changing of diapers in a nursery, there's taking care of children, there is a multitude of things. There is security that needs to be done. These are very practical ways in which you can serve. When your name comes up, when that email comes in saying, can you serve in the nursery this Sunday? Oh, how beautiful it is when our people faithfully say, yes, I will be there and I will be on time to Miss Gladys or I will be on time to the children's area so they're not wondering if I will be here. I will be here and I will serve. That is an important part of helping the church grow and mature. It's an important part for you that you're doing your part in the life of the church. So this is, this is a critically important part of our growth. It allows the, the church and the individual to grow. Well, this morning, I want us to take just a few minutes and look at one of the most beautiful pictures of how the church encourages one another. A healthy church is a church that encourages one another. A healthy, there's, there's many, many passages of Scripture that we could go to on looking at this, about encouraging one another. But I, I think that Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, is one of the most basic and beautiful, and you will see that here in just a moment. Um, in Hebrews, um, let's just remember where the book of Hebrews comes from, and these are on the screen in front of you. The epistle, if you don't know what an epistle is, um, what would you write above the word epistle? It simply means a letter. So go ahead and uh, write letter above that. The epistle of Hebrews, this is a, is a beautiful book of the Bible that is very, very different than other New Testament books. It was written by, we don't know, um, for many years, uh, many thought it was perhaps Paul, um, but we really don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. In fact, Origen, the church father said, only God knows who wrote this. 
Um, he was the theologian in the year 254. Um, it was, I believe, the year that he passed away. But we, we just noticed that, that we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it was somebody that obviously, like Luke, was doing research and listening. It was written to, it was written to fill it in, Jewish Christians and proselyte, proselyte Jews, who were proselyte Jews. Those were people who weren't Jewish but had become Jewish. And then when they heard the gospel, they became Christian. The point is, and we're going to see this here in just a minute, they came out of a mindset of the law. They came out of the mindset of sacrifices. They came out of the mindset of keeping the law. And so the book of Hebrews is a very important letter to them because it's helping them come out beyond the law into Christ. The genre is unusual. It's not like the other letters or the other books of the New Testament. It is a letter, but it's also, fill it in, a sermon. It's a letter written, in, in fact, there's personal references in it. So it's a letter that is written, and it even mentions some of those personal things. But it also is clearly a sermon. Well, what is the message of it? The most important part of the message of the book of Hebrews is, is that Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to mosaic sacrifices and rituals. He's superior to, fill it in, everything. Jesus is superior to everything. And it's written to help people who may be considering looking to something besides Christ or looking to other sacrifices that they would offer. But instead, notice the next one here, Jesus' death is the great atoning sacrifice once and for all. We no longer need the sacrifices of, boats, of, of bulls and goats. Um, we no longer need the sacrifices of a lamb because Jesus was the lamb of God. That all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament that the Jews were used to they were all pointing to this one Messiah. And so, this is the fulfillment of those sacrifices. Jesus is the one once and for all. Notice the next part. We see in the book of Hebrews the word faith a lot. In fact, faith is necessary to please God and to participate in his promises. Faith is very important. Put out there to the side chapter 11. Chapter 11 is called the Great Hall of Faith. It begins with faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. We also see there that it's impossible to please God. In fact, he says, look to all of these who've gone before us, that they had faith in God. Faith is necessary to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Notice the next one. The message of Hebrews is about perseverance. Perseverance is necessary for trials and persecution. When we go through trouble in this life, the book of Hebrews is very honest about that. It's very honest. Like we look at the life of Job and the life of suffering, the troubles of, of David, the troubles of Israel, the troubles of the early church. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you are in a fallen world, but there are promises made by God, and you are called to persevere in those promises, persevering in faith. Now, look at the last one that is on this, on this front side of the page. There are warnings in the book of, of Hebrews, and one of the greatest warnings is, don't leave Jesus. Don't leave Jesus. Stay with him. His salvation is great. Hold fast to him. Don't neglect so great a salvation by looking to other sacrifices that you've left, by looking to angels, by looking to other individuals or people or principles or philosophies. There's no philosophy that's better. He's saying, don't leave Jesus. Now, some of you are turning the page over. Don't do it. Go back to page one. 
These warnings that talk about how to stay with Jesus are multiple. And you see multiple ones here. You ought to read all of those this afternoon. You ought to study those before you go to bed tonight. But circle that one from chapter 10. Chapter 10, 19 through 39 is where our text is this morning. So this is all part of a call to recognize that Jesus is better than anything else, and how do you stay with him? And a healthy church has to do that. So look at the top of the page, and let's read the passage very quickly, and then we'll take some observations from it. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. You see, we, we don't come with a veil any longer keeping us from the holiness of God. Do you remember that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, when he was dying on the cross and he cried out, Telescathai, it is finished, paid in full. The Bible tells us that the veil separating the holy of holies from the rest of the temple, the veil ripped in two. So now through, through Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ, finally being fulfilled, we see that we have access to God. And so look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So how did he do it? He tears the veil in the temple through the curtain of his flesh. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and that is Jesus, Look what it says in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, he has come and he's forgiven us. He's cleansed us. He's given us a, a new heart. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, you see, they were tempted to waver. They were tempted to leave. Persecution was coming. Philosophies were attacking that brought a, a rivalry to the gospel. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, let us, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who, what? Promised. You remember, there's many promises that God has made. He who promised is faithful. He's not going to leave you holding the bag. He's going to deliver on the promises. Look at verse 24. And let us, here's the third one, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you haven't already, flip the sheet over and let's see what these are. Let's see how this fits into a healthy church mindset, a healthy church mindset for you as an individual, a healthy church mindset for us as a collective body. First one, we need to notice that this is written to Christians. This is written to Christians. You need to see that in verse 19. If you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this was written to you. Look at verse 19. Therefore, what does it say? Brothers. Would you circle that? Brothers. And not only do we see it just by the term brothers, but it's even more than that. We see, look what it says. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, these are people who have been transformed because of the blood of Christ. They have been forgiven. They have been made whole. And they, we, the only people that can come into the presence of God are those who have been washed clean. And so this is all happening through Jesus. And that we have confidence in this. This is very encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you. Look what it says. Jesus gives us 
confident access. Fill that in. Jesus gives us confident access to the presence of God through what? His blood. And that's what we see in verse 19. Look what it says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, this is very encouraging to me. In fact, I remember when this passage um, right here and the one that's below it in Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 16, I remember when these passages finally registered in my Christian walk and in my mind. I was about 19 years old, trying to walk with the Lord, and I was obviously, very obviously, struggling with sin constantly, just as I am now. And as I was seeking to grow in him, I started to realize that because of what Jesus had done for me, not because of my performance, but because of what Jesus had done for me, that God says, come in, son, come into my presence. And you don't have to come sheepishly. Because I am your Savior, because I have made you clean, because I have made you my child, you can run in to my presence. Notice here what it says in Hebrews 4 in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of wrath. Is that what it says? Are you guys paying attention? Look what it says. Look at Hebrews 4.16, under the, second, the first bullet point of point one. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace. Grace. That we may receive what? Mercy. And find grace. When? To help in time of need. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always in time of need. This is the constant invitation that I need, that God invites me to come into his presence, calling upon him for help in my life with all of my struggle and my dealing with the flesh. Jesus gives us confident access to the presence of God through his blood. And notice the next point that is here, Jesus's bodily sacrifice and that the scripture is making this very clear in verse 19 and in verse 20, that Jesus, that you see, this shows us the crucifixion is a very big deal to you. If Jesus did not die on the cross for your sin, you would have no access to God. But because he died on the cross, Jesus' bodily sacrifice, look what it says, brings us the new and living way. This makes Christians. This is what brings us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And this is what opens heaven to us and opens the throne room of God to us. There was an individual that had gone to Washington, D.C. in the midst of the Civil War. True story. And he was there in D.C. with a great problem in his life that only a high-level official could solve. He had tried to see Congress people. He had tried to see even the president, Abraham Lincoln, and there was no hope of that. He was sitting outside on a street not far from the White House when a little boy came walking up to him. And they began talking, and the man was very sad, and the little boy was perceptive and said, what is the matter? And he said, I have a problem that really only the president can solve. He said, well, what is it? He listened for a little while, and the little boy said, come with me. And they started making their way toward the White House. And he said, what are we doing? And they came up to the gate of the White House. And they walked through the gate of the White House. And he said, what are you doing? And he said, my name is Robert Todd Lincoln. Come with me. And Robert Todd Lincoln comes dragging this man that he met out on the street. And they come boldly before the President of the United States. You see, this is the picture that you have in Christ. Because of Christ, through the Son, you have access to the Father. 
You have access to the Father who can solve the problems of your life if you will run to him with the confidence that he says that you can have. So this is written to Christians, and it's written to Christians who have been made Christians through the blood of Christ. Notice the next part here. Notice that this is in the context of the church. This is in the context of the church, not just the individual is the point. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great priest over what? Underline it. The house of God. You see, it's not about Christ. Fill this in. It's not about Christ and his person. It's about Christ and his people. This is the great problem of American individualism. American individualism often places everything spiritual on an individual level. And that is not what we see in the Old Testament. And that is not, yes, you are accountable before God as an individual. There's no question about that. But let me tell you that you are not meant to live your spiritual life in a vacuum. You are meant to live your spiritual life with brothers and sisters, a church family, some the same age as you, some younger than you, some older than you. You are meant to live that Christian life collectively together. God blesses this walk together. You see, a healthy church has members, fill it in, a healthy church has members who understand God's priority on their communal life. To the strict individualist, you'll never understand most of the Bible. To the strict individualist, you will never experience what God has truly laid out for his people. You see, Christ, fill it in, is the great high priest, the go-between of not just Christians, but the church. And there are some graces, and there are some strengths, and there are some, listen, securities and help that are only available to Christians in the context of the church. Don't have a problem with me about that. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. We could go through long lists of how God blesses and takes care of his people through the context of his people, as his individuals, through the context of his people collectively. This is what God has designed. Number three, notice this. Notice that this passage, what it is saying about staying with Christ and in community with his people, not leaving Christ, not leaving the community of his people. This is very, very important, and I want you to see it beginning in verse 22. Look what it says in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This happens through Christ. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. You see, all of this is being written in the context of a collective, of the church together doing this, both individually and collectively. Let us stir one another up to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see what? The day, capital D, drawing near. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But notice here with me underneath number three, let us draw near. God wants you to be near to him. This is God's intention for you. Psalm 73, verse 28. But for me, it is good. Excuse me, yes. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all his works. I learned that in the New American Standard that says, but as for me, the nearness to God is my good. The near, if, I, if there's anything good for me, it's being near to God. 
It's interesting how when I'm near to God and I'm listening to God and I'm right with God, everything else doesn't matter nearly as much. I find that being near to God is what solves all the other problems. Being near to God is how I deal with all the other problems. James 4.8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. A very powerful, beautiful promise. So we are called by the writer of Hebrews to draw near to God. Don't toy with getting away from God. Don't toy with wandering away from God. Being far from God is a very dangerous thing. Some of you this morning are getting further and further from God. You're not listening to him. You're not seeking him. You're not, you're not pursuing him. You're floating down a river that is taking you further from God instead of seeking him and pursuing him and staying near to him. That is very, very dangerous. Day before yesterday, we received a call at the office, a young man that had come to this church several times over the last 15 years, wandered and wandered away from God, wound up in trouble with drugs, wound up in trouble in prison. And Thursday night was so engulfed in drugs that he died in his mother's bathroom. There's people who come and they are drawn away by the world and and Satan and all of his power and all of his deception will take you to places that you never dreamed you would be. It is important to stay near to God. Don't toy with being far from him. Our goal and our call is to stay right by his side. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. That's what sin does. You see... Sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. You need to be in the Word of God. God will root out the sin in your life if you're listening to Him, if you're reading what He has said, if you're growing in the knowledge of what He said. Some of you have been toying with drifting from God. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Don't leave God. Don't drift away. Draw near. Stay near. That's what all those passages on page one are all about. Don't. The writer of Hebrews is recognizing even 2,000 years ago in the first century of the church that there is a great draw by the world away from God. But the Lord has made promises that he will keep as we stay near to him. And his true children will stay near to him. His true children will return to him. Notice as well in verse 23. Not only do we draw near to God, but look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You see, he's saying, don't abandon your claim in Christ. Hold on to that. There's many who have abandoned their claim in Christ. Um, we, we had starting point this morning, and in our starting point class, I talked about the fact that there's many who have come through Sheridan Hills, and they no longer call themselves Christians. They no longer hold on to the gospel. And listen, if that was happening just in the last 70s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, friends, I don't know where we're headed, but I believe Matthew 24 and 25, which says it's going to get harder. And if we've seen many hear the gospel and turn away up till now, I I think that we need to listen to the warnings of Matthew 24 and 25 that say, be careful that you are not deceived. 
as the deceptions will become very powerful, drawing many away, perhaps it says even the elect. So notice here, hold fast to your confession. You better be building yourself strong in the Lord. That has to do with your spiritual disciplines and your pursuit of Him. Look at verse 24. We see, look up at verse 24. Let's read it. And it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So let us draw near, let us hold fast, and now it says, let us think about, that. let us meditate on this, let us really consider this, how to stir one another up to love in good works. You know, this idea of stirring one another up, the, the evidence shows in ancient Greek language, they used it the same way that we do. And we talk about this very often as a starting point as we look at this very passage. We talk about the fact that there are people who stir. And usually when we use that term in English, when we, you know, if we're talking about stirring something up, usually we're talking about stirring up what? We're talking about stirring up trouble. And what kind of trouble? It's the kind of talking about stirring up trouble that usually is relational trouble. This person is, is, you know, it's kind of like the kid, you know, when I was in middle school, we'd come up and you, you know, you're bumping around and everybody's messing around and everything. And you go, hey man, did you hear what he said about you? You going to let him get away with that? Are you kidding me? You know, and it, it, boys can do that. Girls can do that. You know, our sinful, selfish nature tends to stir up strife. And the Bible says, uh, has a lot to say about that and how evil that is. But in our fleshliness and in our immaturity, we can run around just kind of using our life to stir up trouble, or we can be those who walk with God and use our life not to stir up trouble, but to stir up just the opposite of that. To stir up, look what it says, love and good deeds. You know, there's a lot of churches that have a lot of people that just are still acting like non-Christians. They love to stir up trouble. There are families that have family members that love to stir up trouble. There are businesses and workplaces that they have individuals that love to stir up trouble. We, we, we see that all around us, and some of you know who you are. Are you one of those people? That when the Thanksgiving dinner is about to happen or the Christmas event is about to happen or the big birthday for grandma is about to happen, are you one of the people who makes trouble or are you one of the people who calms down trouble? You see, one is very Christian. The other one is very unchristian. God calls his people to be the kind of people that don't run around stirring up trouble, but run around stirring up love and good deeds. You see, do you encourage love or do you encourage, fill it in, division? Do you encourage love or do you encourage division? Which do you stir up? Do you encourage people to do right or do you encourage people to do wrong? You know, there's some people that just see how much they would love to corrupt others to get them to join in false things. I spoke recently to some people in our church about an exceedingly evil man that lived across the street from my house, right over here, two blocks away. As I, he was a kid growing up, a pastor's kid growing up. And this guy kind of had in his mentality, this young kid that lives across the street from me is the son of a pastor at a church, and I'm going to just see if I can get him to enter into wicked and evil things. He literally constantly put things before me trying to tempt me to do the wrong thing. It was kind of his goal. He offered to show me porn. Illegal. He offered to um, have me enter into some business things that would have been very wrong. He offered to me drugs. He was there seeking to stir up within me evil deeds. 
Now, I can tell you that the man, by the time I was a junior in high school, on his deathbed, prayed to receive Jesus Christ. He was a gentleman that had resisted, uh, and he had presented to me every argument you could ever imagine against God. He would sit and talk to me for hours trying to get me to believe that we were all creatures of chance. God worked in his life. There was a nurse's aide, wonderful, wonderful woman who spent time with him hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month in the midst of all of his health trouble. And I had been witnessing to him for five or six years. And I came home from college one day and dad said, you need to go over and see Lee. I went over to see him and he looked at me and big tears rolling down his face and he said, Jesus has made all things new. And that nurse's aide had faithfully led him to faith in Jesus. What do you stir people up to? Do you stir them up to evil or do you stir them up to good? When people are your friends, are they more holy because of you or are they less holy because of you? Your family, is it more together because of you or is it less together because of you? This church, is this church a more holy church because of you or a less holy church because of you? We are to stir one another up to love and good deeds. This is encouraging. And then notice in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but there it is, circle it, but encouraging one another. You see, the, the opposite of encouraging one another is neglecting one another and neglecting to meet. Um, yes, in verse 25, I want you to see that this is the great and powerful verse that says, go to church. This is the great and powerful verse that says, it matters that you are with your church family on the Lord's day. You see, fill these in. Your presence is your first encouragement to the church. This says don't neglect to meet together. Your presence is your first encouragement to the church. You can encourage the church simply by showing up. Now, that's not the only way that you ought to encourage the church, but I want you to recognize here that that's the first way. Number two, your prioritization of worship in your, in your life is good for you and others. You see, it's not only about you being good that you're here, but it's also for the welfare of others that you are a blessing to others. That's very important. Notice the third one here. When you are absent from worship, and act as if Sunday is just another day, or Sunday is, we, we hear this a lot, well, you know, Sunday's my only day. You're like, no, it's not. It's not your day. It is the Lord's day. That's clearly what we see. This is the Lord's day. You see, when you are absent from worship and act as if Sunday is just another day or your day, this is a, fill it in, discouragement to your church family. You're absent. You say, what do you mean? Nobody even knew I went there. Oh, no. Rest assured, it's a discouragement to others that need you. You say, nobody needs me. Well, if you were here more, they would need you. <laughs> and they're missing you. This is what God has for us, that we encourage one another. What if everybody did what you did? There'd be Pastor Andrew down there with Pastor Jason and Pastor Ben, Pastor William, all by themselves, and maybe they'd give up too. What if everybody did what you did? 
You see, this is, this is the mentality that we need to recognize. I, I want to stretch your, your thinking this morning to recognize that an encouraging church starts off being encouraging first by the fact that they are together and that they're together regularly before the Lord, that they are knowing one another, growing in one another, caring for one another, encouraging one another all the more. You know, I've always found it interesting that in verse 24 and verse 25, it says, look at verse 25, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. It doesn't say that the great reason for your coming together is specifically for the preaching of the Bible. As important and central as that is, there's no doubt, but it, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that you should meet together to encourage one another. Now, there's a lot of ways that we encourage one another. We see one another. We greet one another. We get to know one another. We're walking in that together. But we also get to know one another. Excuse me. We encourage one another through prayer together. We encourage one another through singing together. That's why you ought to sing when we sing. Did that you say that wouldn't be encouragement to anyone, Pastor? I'm telling you. And that, no, it is. We we are called to come together and to enter into worship together. And we've just sung a song, prepare us, Lord, for the word that's being preached. That, that encourages us. But it is interesting to me that when it says not neglecting to meet together, it doesn't say so that you don't miss out on the preaching of the word. It says so that you may encourage one another. So you just need to recognize that by being here, you are encouraging one another. Fill this in. When you are consistently here and actively involved, this builds up your Christian friends in ways you likely do not realize. You say, but Pastor, I'm just, I hardly know anyone. I'm just a nobody. I, I just, you know, I don't have these gifts of teaching or whatever, and I don't even know very much about the Bible. How could I be an encouragement to this church? I, this church just needs to encourage me. I mean, I have so far to go. How in the world? Listen, this is the whole point. As you come into the body of Christ, as you begin to grow as a Christian and grow in the knowledge and obedience to God's Word, that is what encourages one another. And so we all, as we do that together, we grow together in love. And this is what helps us.